Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you our listeners. This week's stories include a sailor who witnessed the atomic bomb exploding and lived to tell the tale, a medical emergency solved by a POW, a training exercise with an explosive ending, and parents whose paths first crossed in wartime. We begin this week at sea with this story from Cole Gill. Dear James and Al, I enjoy listening to your podcast and family stories. I have a family story to tell about my grandpa, Ray Fitchett, who was born in Canada, but by the time war broke out was living in England. He was 22 and enlisted in the Royal Navy, trained at HMS Raleigh and was then assigned to the heavy cruiser HMS Exeter. He was on board when Churchill, the King, Queen and the then Princess Elizabeth came to inspect Exeter after a refit and met them. Then it was convoy duty for a time in the Atlantic before HMS Exeter led a convoy to Africa and was then assigned to the Far East Fleet. On convoy duty there, Exeter was attacked by Japanese bombers. She survived that and then had another escape when she left Singapore the day before it fell to the Japanese. But the Japanese were getting closer. Exeter took part in the first battle of the Java Sea in February 1942 during which she took a direct hit to the boiler room and had to retreat from battle under cover of a smokescreen. My granddad said that while he was helping collect the dead from the boiler room, he found a Japanese shell that had Made in England 1916 on it. It had been supplied to the Japanese during the First World War. On the 1st of March, a couple of days after the first battle, Exeter was sunk during the second battle of the Java Sea. My granddad was one of the 652 men rescued by the Japanese, and would spend the rest of the war as a prisoner of war. First, he was held in an old Dutch colonial fortress, and then shipped to Japan itself, where he was imprisoned in Fukuoka Camp 2B. The camp overlooked Nagasaki, and he was there on the 9th of August, when the Americans dropped Fat Man, the second of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. He said it was as if a tanker had been blown up. But he also said he never felt the heat or the blast from the bomb, with Nagasaki being so low and his camp up so high. After the Japanese surrender, the Americans liberated the camp. My granddad weighed only 84 pounds at the time. He had a long journey home. 
He was taken to Okinawa to recover, then Melbourne and Pearl Harbour before finishing his recovery in Victoria, Canada. After that, he went to San Francisco and was put on a train to New York and crossed the Atlantic on the Queen Mary. At Portsmouth, my grandma was waiting for him. She hadn't seen him for five years. They'd got engaged before he went off to sea. He received a letter from the King for his service. It's framed in my room next to his medals and a model of the Exeter. My grandma and granddad got married and moved back to Canada, where they lived out their lives together in High River, Alberta, and where they are now buried side by side. From Colgill. Next, we have this story from Sally Barber. Dear Al and James, while I can still clearly remember, I must share one of the stories my great-uncle George used to tell me and my brother while we were growing up. In his later years, Uncle George used to put the live-firing red flags out around Otterburn Rages. He never carried out this job by car. It was always on motorbike, which leads nicely onto his wartime adventures. George started off as an armourer on Hurricanes and was based in southern England throughout the Battle of Britain. He volunteered to move to Bomber Command and was then based at Scampton as a driver armourer before a chance request for competent motorcyclists saw him volunteer for motorbike dispatch rider duties in Egypt. George was a pre-war rider, so jumped at the opportunity and was immediately posted out to Africa. He would tell us stories of being chased by packs of wolves across a desert on his Lee Enfield bike. The most enduring memory for him was his only brush with death when he was saved by the enemy. Uncle George somehow developed acute tonsillitis while based in the desert. So quick was the onset of the virus, and so severe the infection, there was no medical officer to hand. If the detachment had moved him, or waited for a doctor to arrive from Alexandria, he probably would have died. There was, however, a German doctor who was a prisoner of war. Someone had the foresight to ask a group of German prisoners, and the doctor stepped forward. Now, we've always been unsure about the truth of the next bit, but Uncle George always told us he had his tonsils removed by a German POW who was guarded at gunpoint while he performed the surgery. There was no anaesthesia, no ice cream or ice cubes afterwards, but George survived to tell the tale, and he continued to love motorbikes until he died in 2009. Best wishes, Sally Barber. Our next story is from Sue Sinclair. My dad's tale is the worm's eye view of the war, from joining the TA Light Anti-Aircraft Regiment as a dispatch rider in Liverpool in 1939, to his honourable medical discharge in 1946. I find it near impossible to summarise his experiences adequately. His troop ship being attacked on Christmas Day, life as a desert rat, patrols behind enemy lines, the desperate fighting to hold Tobruk, then being taken as a POW. As a prisoner of war, he was transferred to Italy, where he escaped, was captured and tortured, only to escape again, jumping from a moving train. He went on the run, traversing almost the length of Italy on his own, but for the time he was saved by the kindness of a convent of nuns, when he collapsed at their door with malaria. He was finally captured once more, only yards from the Swiss border, and he went on to endure brutal treatment at the hands of the SS, as he was transferred to Stalag IV before being liberated by US troops. Dad gave many vivid descriptions of the desperate situations he faced and the absolutely harrowing conditions he endured. He most deftly used all his nine lives. 
His stories are also imbued with a very real and persistent humanity, and he includes many amusing escapades too. To give a flavour of this side of his story, I've decided to relate one incident early on in the war in Liverpool, 1940, described in his own words. On my dispatch rounds, bright and early, through the tunnel to my first stop, the Seacombe Ferry gun site. Just in time for morning tea, Seacombe's cook made a grand cuppa. One of the lads had a brother working in a bonded warehouse, and they always had a drop of hard stuff for their morning brew. You can understand why I always tried to make that site my first port of call. Standing in a group, all drinking the well-laced brew, we were one big happy family. Unfortunately, a few moments later, the Major's car swept unchallenged through the gate. Had the guard drank his tea at his post, had the telephonist returned to his phone with his, we'd have got the message the Major was on the prowl. Instead, he had arrived unannounced. You can imagine the flap. Cups of good tea went in all directions as the men fell over each other to get out to the gun. It didn't do any good. He'd found the gun unmanned, barrel depressed, complete with the block cover on. The Major was roaring like a lion. I stayed in the cookhouse out of sight, soon to be joined by his driver. Boy, time and again did he put them through it. Plain action stations, as again and again they ran to the gun. He was so mad he was almost taking swipes at them with his cane. Target, funnel on the ferry boat, come on! The barrel swung round and the two voices, almost as one, said, On target! Plain, live a bird on the left of the building. The barrel swung again, the stopwatch ticking away in his hand. On target! He looked for himself, and he wasn't too happy. Mind you, he was in that kind of mood. Plane! Barrage balloon over Birkenhead docks! Round came the barrel again, this time almost in a 360-degree turn, all the time him shouting to the gun crew to hurry up. I remember I had just bent down to get myself another cup of that splendid tea. It was a crime to let it go cold. The voices on the gun shouting, On target! Maybe the Major had got fed up playing that game, so shouted, Fire! The object of the new game is to pull the lanyard. The gun will give a click, open the breech and go through the motion to load a fresh shell. But it was not to be. Instead, the gun clicked and went bang and a six-inch shell screamed out over the cookhouse roof and away over the rooftops. I very near fell into the Dixie of tea. I wonder who was the most surprised, the Major, the Gunners, the sleeping locals or the crew that had just set up their lovely silver barrage balloon only to have it shot down in flames before their very eyes. It didn't take me long to get away from that side of my bike, lost in a spray of gravel just as soon as I had uncrossed my eyes and unplugged my ears. At the Seacombe Ferry gun site there was murder over it, and for a good few days life was hardly worth living. His lordship had a cob on, like a bear with a sore head, the whole battery paid the price, and the officers had a very rough time of it. After all, it was their job to keep everybody on their toes. Can you imagine if he'd shouted the order to fire at the other targets? If he shot down a liver bird, he'd have started the Third World War before the second had properly got underway. My dad's memoirs were written in secret, the only therapy his doctor could suggest for what we now recognise as PTSD. They were only read by our family after his death in 1980. Comprising three volumes, they provide a profound insight into his personal experiences of the war, experiences that are, in many cases, literally incredible. I'm so proud of my dad, Lance Bombardier Harris, known to his army mates as Scouse. Best wishes, Sue Sinclair.
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy. But discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story comes from Richard Allen. Hi, James and Al. I'd like to share what I found out about my mother and father. My mother, Valerie, joined the ATS in 1939, but she always found it very painful to talk about what happened during the war. In 1940, she married, and in 1942, her husband was killed in a car accident in Cornwall. Valerie did an officer's course and was posted to the Middle East in April 1942. 
1943, she joined military intelligence at the General Headquarters in Cairo. At some point, when she was in the Middle East, she served as Enoch Powell's secretary. In December, her only brother Ralph was killed in Italy at the age of 21. She never really got over his death. It was around this time, when she was on leave in Beirut, that she first met Doug, my father. In August 1943, Valerie joined Secure Communications Unit No. 6, still as an intelligence officer. She never talked about it, and I've not been able to find out what SCU-6 did. I'm guessing it may have had a role in disseminating ultra-intelligence within the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. This is on the basis that SCU No. 1 was responsible for the distribution of ultra from Bletchley Park. Valerie's mother died in 1944. She always said killed by a V2. Her father having died in 1928, her entire family was now gone. At some stage, she suffered mental health issues. Not too surprising, really, after all she'd been through. She finished the war as a junior commander, equivalent to a captain, still in intelligence, returning to the UK in November 1945. I remember going to see the Battle of Britain film with my parents in Cape Town when it first came out in 1969. They had loads of publicity stuff going on at the cinema, including the sound of an air raid siren which suddenly filled the foyer. Mum went pale and rushed into the street outside. Returning a few minutes later, she said the noise had instantly brought feelings of fear back. Valerie died in 1986, without ever divulging any details of what she'd actually done during her time as an intelligence officer during the war. My dad, Doug Allen, had just been commissioned into the Remi when war began. In 1940, he was put in charge of a workshop team whose job it was to install anti-aircraft guns in parts of London. There were to be three teams to cover the whole city. They worked long hours, absolutely flat out, seven days a week for weeks on end. His team put guns in Richmond Park, Hyde Park, Regent's Park, Clapham Common and many other places. At one point, when he was utterly exhausted, he was riding back to his digs on his motorbike and swears he fell fast asleep at the beginning of Oxford Street and only woke up at Marble Arch, having ridden the entire length of Oxford Street with his arms locked and his head slumped forward on his chest. At Clapham Common one night, in the Blitz, the noise was stupefying, with several guns firing continuously. After the raid was over and everything fell silent, he discovered that an RAF fighter had power-dived into the Common about a 100 yards away, and he hadn't heard a thing. All that was left was a huge smoking crater. Doug also told me about the parachute mines, which were a couple of thousand pounds of explosive and extremely deadly. One night he was walking in London with a young lady, both of them smartly dressed in uniform, when they thought they heard a parachute come down behind them. Having hurled them both to the ground, Dad recalled having his face pressed firmly in the gutter. After a moment or two, with no explosion, they got up rather sheepishly to discover a fragment of material was flapping in a tree. The evening was ruined along with their uniforms. On one particularly bad night, he drove out of London and parked by the side of the road. Looking back at the blazing city, he remembers thinking that was it. London was gone. He felt at that moment the war was probably lost. In July 1941, Doug was posted to the Middle East as Brigade Workshop Officer, and by now a Major. He travelled on a convoy from Liverpool, buying an expensive waterproof watch for the journey because it might come in handy if they got torpedoed. He gave it to me when I was about 18. Sadly, I was too callous to look after it properly and it has since been lost. He spent a fair amount of time in Cairo, but he moved around quite a bit, going to Palestine and Lebanon. It was in Beirut that he met my mother, although they didn't get together until after the war in Cape Town. Part of his responsibilities involved driving long distances in the desert to liaise with local tribes, and with the fluid nature of desert war, he was worried he would drive over the brow of a hill and come face to face with the Germans. 
For this eventuality, he had the workshop rig up a Bren gun on the roof with a cord running down from the trigger, down into the car. The plan on unexpectedly coming face to face with the enemy was to pull on the cord while the driver reversed at top speed with the Bren keeping their heads down until they had a chance to do a U-turn and get away. Fortunately, it never had to be used in anger. During this time, he contracted polio and spent time in an iron lung. It must have been bad because he was on the critical list and my grandparents received a telegram informing them he was not expected to survive. Thankfully, he pulled through. But his closest near-death experience came during his time in Palestine when he was at Haifa installing coastal defence guns in the harbour. One of the guns had a shell stuck in the barrel and they spent several days trying to get it loose. One day they tried using paraffin as a lubricant. Doug was on the ladder at the mouth of the gun using a lit torch to peer down the barrel when suddenly there was an enormous bang and he was flung into the air landing 20 or 30 feet away in the water. He recalled being absolutely convinced that the shell had somehow been fired and he had been blown to pieces and that these were his last moments of life. In fact, the fumes in the barrel had ignited and caused the explosion and his subsequent trajectory into the Mediterranean. It took several days for his hearing to return and he remained slightly hard of hearing for the rest of his life. Doug and Valerie married in South Africa in 1947, retiring to England in the 1970s where Doug died in 2000. In his last years in sheltered accommodation, he became good friends with his neighbour, a German called Willie, who'd been in the Africa Corps and was captured, spending time as a POW in England. He stayed in England after the war, and Dad said it was odd how they would have tried to kill each other in the 40s, but enjoyed having a beer together in the 90s. Many thanks. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>